KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. Welcome back to the KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm Beth Accomando. Today's podcast was recorded earlier this year when the film geeks at the Digital Gym Cinema launched the Universal Suspects film series. The film series is billed as 40 monsters, 31 movies, 12 months, and no escape. We're in the second half of the series, and this weekend, Abbott and Costello meet the mummy, and the mummy's ghost will screen on Sunday at 1 p.m. at the Digital Gym. But back in January, I convened a geek roundtable with my partner in crime and fellow film geek, Miguel Rodriguez. Miguel also runs the Horrible Imaginings Film Festival, which is coming up next month. Miguel and I both volunteer as programmers with the film geeks at the Digital Gym Cinema. And for our first year-long film series, we went with our hearts and programmed the complete collection of classic Universal monster films. So here's our discussion of everything from Dracula to the creature from the Black Lagoon. So hope you'll enjoy listening to us geek out about movie monsters. Count Dracula sleeps in this coffin, but rises every night at sunset. Chick is right. This is awful silly stuff. That's how Abbott and Costello looked at Dracula in 1948. This is almost two decades after Universal Studios created Dracula and Frankenstein on the screen for the first time. Watching these movies today, some modern audiences might giggle at things that seem cliche. The cobwebs hanging, the way Dracula enters for the first time, the music cues that we get. Back in the 1930s, when Universal introduced these creatures to audiences, these things might have seemed a lot fresher, wouldn't they, Miguel? Yeah, I do believe that at the time, uh, this was the birth of, first of all, the talkies. So a lot of the sound effects you're talking about, that would have been a fairly new experiences for cinema audiences. And just the the atmosphere that they had in general what would have been fresh and new and slightly disturbing to some of the people who weren't used to those kinds of atmospheres that uh, you could do more with that with film than what people were used to with the stage plays. Like, for example, Dracula itself was based more on the stage play than the Bram Stoker novel. So even the people who had experienced the stage play would have gotten more of an eerie feeling from Todd Browning's film. So Universal dabbled in monsters in the silent films with The Hunchback of Notre Dame and Phantom of the Opera. But Dracula was the first time these monsters got a voice. So let's hear what people would have heard when Dracula first introduced himself. I am Dracula. It's really good to see you. I don't know what happened to the driver and my luggage and... Well, and with all this, I I thought I was in the wrong place. I bid you welcome. So this is Bella Lugosi as Dracula coming on screen for the first time. This has become such an iconic image of Dracula that has held through over the decades. Yeah, so iconic that it has become a breakfast cereal. <laughs> I mean, when people think of Dracula, you have the Dracula costume 
that's what you have. You have Bela Lugosi in his long black cape and his talisman and the slicked black hair with the widow's peak. And uh, it defined a whole icon and myth for us that still still resonates today, even with redefinitions. I think when people tend to just picture Dracula just with the name, you don't see Francis Ford Coppola's or you don't see Frank Langella. You see Bela Lugosi. Well, even Frank Langella, who that was a universal it was. horror picture, but in 1978, you still get a lot of those classic Dracula elements in terms of the way he dresses, this very elegant kind of count. And you get that image carrying through, especially to comedies, too, where you get uh, old Dracula or Dracula dead and loving it. So it's a, a very powerful image that we've kept. And even though we might, might find it kind of cliched, it's so compelling. It's undeniably compelling if it's something we're still picturing 70 years later. Here's another very classic moment from Bella Lugosi as Dracula. Listen to them, children of the night, what music they make. This Dracula came out in 1931. Mm -hmm. How was it received? Oh, huge. Absolutely huge. It was a phenomenal success uh, in terms of box office. And that is saying something, especially considering 1931 was right in the middle of the Great Depression. And Universal Studios, uh, or the studio run by Uncle Carl Lemley, was was in some dire straits at the time. This is really what pulled them out of of the financial burdens that they had. Without this success, who knows if they would have even survived today. So that's something I think a lot of people have to keep in mind is, in a way, these monsters saved Hollywood. And partly, I think, there are a lot of different factors here. Partly it is Bela Lugosi's accent. This is Universal's, I believe, their first talkie. If not their first, then one of their first. And one of their first voices is this Hungarian accent saying these lines in this very unnatural way that I think a lot of people, that was some that was part of the fear for them. And also part of the draw is just the way Bella spoke. And I think that is a big reason for its success is the, exactly what we just heard. I am Dracula. That Even that pause, <laughs> you know, the way he said lines was so much fun. And following right on the heels of this was another monster movie that gave us a very different kind of monster. If Bela Lugosi was all about the accent and the talking, Frankenstein gave us a silent monster. That's right. So same year, in fact, James Whale's Frankenstein came out based rather loosely on the Mary Shelley novel. The funny thing about that is Bela Lugosi was considered for the part of the monster, for Frankenstein's monster, and uh, and even went through makeup tests and screen tests and the whole the whole thing. But uh, but Bella's monster was a very different idea. What we ended up with uh, Karloff in the role of the monster. What what we ended up with the screen is is very much the sympathetic beast monster, for lack of a better word, that, that we've all come to know and love. The one who has really resonated, I think, most with audiences. And we have the director, James Whale, really to thank for bringing this kind of humanity to the monster that wasn't in the original plan. Oh, yeah. I, I completely think that is the case. 
In fact, James Whale was so successful and, and his take was so revered by audiences that Universal did not want to let James Whale go. <laughs> they, they, they wanted him as their contract director for, for many, many more films to come because of that. He nailed something there with, with The Sympathetic Monster. And talking about iconic, let's listen to a moment from Frankenstein that has resonated for decades. It's alive. It's moving. It's alive. It's alive. It's alive. It's alive. It's alive. <laughs> I'm not even kidding when I just when I say I just got shivers listening to Colin Clive in that scene. You were probably about to say that that was cut from the original version. I, I don't know if if that line he says about now I know what it's like to be God that was chopped when this first theatrical which you can ran. understand why. Mm-hmm. Because of the things that it raises, but that notion of being God is so key to Frankenstein and some of these other monster movies. Because this is science, not so much science gone wrong, as we're later going to talk about, but science that kind of makes these scientists a little drunk on power because they're they're discovering this ability to create. Well, yeah, and this is a time, you know, we're living in a time now where you can have uh, scientists do shows like Cosmos that are very well received by the public. But at the time that when the novel was written and when this film came out, scientists and science were still fairly far removed from the general public and and had this kind of mystique about them that they were playing with things that maybe we weren't meant to know. And so there was some fear there. And uh, and if if we do want to know about the inner workings of everything, then, then yeah, that comes with some kind of power madness about it. And that whole idea of I now I know what it's like to be God. Maybe we're playing in God's domain. So very resonant in both the book. And in fact, the alternate title of Mary Shelley's original novel is the modern Prometheus and this idea of someone stealing something from the gods. And it's very interesting. And let's hear one more clip from this that taps into the notion of gods and monsters. I would like to drink to our partnership. Do you like gin? It is my only weakness. To a new world of gods and monsters. (laughs) Also key to bringing these monsters to life was makeup artist Jack Pierce. Tell us about his influence on these films. Jack Pierce is not only the makeup artist, but but kind of the designer for how they looked. The directors did have a lot of input. Uh, for example, James Whale wanted Frankenstein's monster to have that flat head, like a big, you know, soup can that you could lift off and put the brain in. All of our images of these monsters, from cartoons, breakfast cereals, what have you, we can really attribute to Jack Pierce and his makeup artistry. Before Jack Pierce. Makeup artistry really wasn't a regular thing. It was really more like what people would do for the stage. Actors did their own makeup. In fact, in Dracula, the first of these in 1931, Bela Lugosi insisted on doing his own makeup. He did his own makeup. Before that, you had Lon Chaney in the silent era, Lon Chaney Sr., doing his own makeup. And that's why he's so well known is he did such a wonderful job of it. But Jack Pierce was kind of the birth of what we see as the makeup artist now. And has inspired everyone from Rick Baker to Greg Nicotero and all of these wonderful makeup artists we have now is 
We have Jack Pierce, who was not even credited at the time. He was just, in Carl Lemley's view, in the studio's view, he was just some dude that they had working for them, just another schmo in the back lot, but a true artist. And I think the people who really appreciated him were the actors who sat in his chair for hours and hours and hours. Well, and he brought both a sense of the horrific and the humane in the monsters. And we also have The Bride of Frankenstein as well, which was the very successful sequel to Frankenstein. That's right. I think what Jack Pierce was able to do with his own personal style, he invented a lot of what he did. So he was very innovative. But his makeups, even though they were very extreme, were also, they left a lot of movement of the eyes and the mouth. And so facial expressions were still the actor had a lot of control. Even with someone like the Wolfman, who we'll talk about in a minute, there's still a lot there that Lon Chaney Jr. could do with his mouth. Gosh, what Karloff did in the monster makeup in Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein, you have no choice but to to root for him. Those sad eyes, the lumbering walk, everything about him that he could bring, even under awfully painful appliances that Jack put on him. It really, really shows through and speaks to the audience. Now, Dracula and Frankenstein were both taken from literary sources. Universal next turned to a kind of ripped-from-the-headlines kind of source material, and their next monster was the mummy. So let's hear a little bit about the mummy. The ancient rites must be performed over thy body, and then I will read the great spell with which Isis brought Osiris back from the grave. And thou shalt rise again. No. No, I'm alive. I'm young. I won't die. I loved you once. But now you belong with the dead. I am Angsten Almond. But I'm somebody else too. I want to live even in this strange new world. For thy sake I was buried alive. I ask of thee only a moment of agony. Only so can we be united. Okay, a moment of agony. Tell us a little bit about what inspired The Mummy. The Mummy came out in 1932, uh, a decade after the discovery of the tomb of King Tutankhamun, uh, which was in 1922. So 10 years is not, you know, it's a whole decade, but for the hugeness of that discovery... It was still fresh, and uh, and people were really obsessed with the idea of King Tut, and, and you can see why. What we have is, you know, after classical literature and things like the Renaissance, finally we see a body from that era two thousand years ago. It still has flesh on it, <laughs> and uh, the idea of mummification was both fascinating and terrifying, and and I think that's where we get this idea of it looks. The, bo- the body of King Tut looks so intact. What if it could come back? And, uh, and this idea of resurrection is a big part of what drives the mythos of the 1932 mummy, uh, where we have Karloff delivering amazing dialogue and his amazing voice. He's allowed to speak, unlike really Frankenstein had him do that much. And what's really nice about these films that you don't really get in modern cinema is that sense of delivering lines in a theatrical, almost stage play kind of way. It's not naturalistic, but it is fascinating and lovely. <laughs> the way he says, 
for thee I have, I was buried alive. The way he delivers that line is so dramatic. I love it. Well, you know, when you've been dead for a thousand years or so, you're allowed a little theatricality. The mummy, as well as Dracula, going back to that, also introduces this notion of foreigners and the way they're able to kind of awaken a certain sexuality in the poor puritanical young women of America. So that was part of the draw as well. Oh, gosh, yes. That's If you're trying to scare an audience, which you think is a lot made up of middle-aged white men or younger white men, <laughs> then... Uh, the, that is a very – that line runs through a lot of things of the uh, mysterious foreigner coming to take our women. Dracula had that in spades. I mean there was – Bella Lugosi was very seductive. Uh, again, hearkening back to that accent, his eyes, the movement of his fingers, everything, you know. You must be Hungarian to quote Ed Wood, the Tim Burton movie. Um and then, of course, we have now The Mummy with Boris Karloff, who was an Englishman, but playing an Egyptian, coming back to life to find uh, who he believes is his resurrected love. And uh, both films are very much not just horror films, but uh, melodramas. These were very melodramatic romance films as well, especially The Mummy. And what kind of allowed the women to act a little more free was the fact that the sense of hypnosis or that they were hypnotizing these women and taking control of them. And this kind of allowed them to become involved in these romances of sorts with these foreigners was kind of a, that was a different kind of scary for an American audience at that time. Yeah, well, you have two things that that can allow you to do. You get, we realize the fear of someone I love and someone who is one of my people (laughs) going toward a foreign entity, but you also get the ability for that to happen, but for the woman to also be, uh, what's the word? Denying responsibility exactly. for their actions. Yeah, yeah. She she doesn't have to be punished at the end, you know? So <laughs> uh, it relieves her of the responsibility at that same time because there's a magical uh, element to it, uh, which is funny because I think a lot of the fear of the and the xenophobia that was attributed to the mysterious foreigner taking our women was that they were putting some kind of power over them some kind of that was a very real fear too and so these movies gave that a literal meaning now next up on the monster lineup for universal it's kind of a bit of a return to the notion of gods and monsters and and scientists drunk on power a little bit and this is the invisible man this is the first film to star one of the more underappreciated actors, I think, Claude Rains, who plays the Invisible Man. Let's hear him. Power, I said. Power to walk into the gold vaults of the nations, into the secrets of kings, into the holy of holies. Power to make multitudes run squealing in terror at the touch of my little invisible finger. Even the moon's frightened of me, frightened to death. The whole world's frightened to death. All right. This was 1933. So tell us, was this as popular as the other Universal Monsters? Uh, Yes, and actually also directed by James Whale, 
who brings his deft touch to humanizing not only the monster, but the people around him. Uh, <laughs> you've got a, a whole wild cast of characters in this film, which add to its success. But uh, as you mentioned, the greatest success in this movie is the Invisible Man himself, Dr. Jack Griffin, played by Claude Rains. And one of the reasons I think it is so impressive is you never see his face. He's going completely on his voice, which is extremely powerful, and the, the, the movements of his hand and the tilt of his head. That Because kind of, it's completely – when he's not invisible, it's because he's wrapped in bandages the whole time. And yeah, this has also got a literary tradition based on a novel by H.G. Wells. You know, Wells is known for these science fiction type dramas where the science aspect not always has a happy ending. It's got an idea of madness behind it and just – Playing that clip that you just played, Reigns' madness comes through so well, and I, I could listen to that again and again and again. While we're on the topic of madness, mm -hmm. there's another universal monster, the Wolfman, which harkens back to a lot of myths and fairy tales. But we also get this modern element of psychology and the notion of maybe things are in people's minds. Let's hear a little bit of... This time it's Claude Rains, not as the monster, but he's giving us a little background on the Wolfman. What is this story about a man turning into a wolf? You mean the werewolf? Yes, sir. Well, it's an old legend. You'll find something like it in the folklore of nearly every nation. The scientific name for it is lycanthropia. It's a variety of schizophrenia. Uh, that's all Greek to me. Well, it is Greek. It's a technical expression for something very simple. The good and evil in every man's soul. In this case, evil takes the shape of an animal. I can figure out most anything if you give me electric current and tubes and wires, but something I can do with my hands, but these things you can't even touch. What's the matter with you, Larry? Oh. Well, nothing, sir. But do you believe in these yarns? Larry, to some people, life is very simple. They decide that this is good, that is bad. This is wrong, that's right. There's no right and wrong, no good and bad. No shadings and grays, all blacks and whites. That'd be Paul Montford. Exactly. Now, others of us find that good, bad, right, wrong are many-sided, complex things. We try to see every side. But the more we see, the less sure we are. Now, you ask me if I believe a man can become a wolf. Well, if you mean, can he take on the physical characteristics of an animal? No, it's fantastic. However, I do believe that most anything can happen to a man in his own mind. So we have Lon Chaney Jr. taking on the role of the wolf man. And what people may forget about almost all of these monsters is they do have this incredible humanity, which gives these horror films a very different tone from a lot of what our con contemporary films are like. Yeah, that's right. I think these films can be more attributed to the tradition, the dramatic tradition of, of tragedies. Uh, and nowhere is that more evident than in The Wolfman, where you literally do see the monster's humanity because whenever it's not a full moon, he's just a regular guy. Lon Chaney Jr., this is his first turn in this cycle. Of course, his father was the legendary Lon Chaney. And Lon Chaney Jr. probably had a lot to live up to, right down to his name. In fact, Lon Chaney is not his actual name. It's actually Creighton Chaney. But uh, 
they insisted he was a contract and they're like, nope, you're Lon Chaney Jr. because that'll sell more tickets. And, you know, grudgingly, he went with it. But what we have here is is, you've got Lenny from Of Mice and Men coming to Europe after being in America and uh, and having this curse foisted upon him, actually because of Bela Lugosi as a nice little side note. But it's not something that is pleasant at all. In fact, it's horribly tragic. And Lon Chaney Jr. ends up having to having to communicate this torment that he goes through whenever he changes into a wolf and then is faced with the responsibility of what he's done the next morning. It's really sad. And the film does a great job of communicating that, as do as does Lon Chaney Jr. He the look in his eyes is quite pained. And it is that psychology of who am I really and what should I do? And I need to really I need to kill myself. And and that idea is a terrifying idea, especially for 1944 when this film came out. Oh, and also the suggestion that it could be all in his head. We as the audience see him going through this physical transformation. But part of what Claude Rains is suggesting is that maybe this is something just going on in his mind, which is also adds another layer of horror to what could possibly be going on. Right. I guess from, yeah, from Lon Chaney Jr.'s perspective, he doesn't see himself becoming a wolf. So, I mean, there is an aspect of, I mean, am I doing, am I just nuts? Am I doing these horrible things? And is it just me? Is it not because I'm becoming a monster? And this was at a time when the science of psychology is still new, particularly to a general audience. And there was, there is a psychology concept called lycanthropy, which is where people think they're turning into a wolf at a certain time. So uh, that was, it was hearkening to that as well. The Wolfman could be considered the last of the original universal monsters. And the studio tried to milk these original monsters for all their worth. So what happened to them kind of in this decade after The Wolfman came out? Well, The Wolfman was very successful. But, you know, following The Wolfman, Universal kind of fell into this glut of, similarly to what we see now of whenever you hear someone complain about, oh, it's just nothing but a bunch of sequels and remakes. Well, that's kind of what Universal did. And in fact, the next Mummy movies were just remakes, really, of that first Mummy movie. And then sequel after sequel after sequel here, you've got Dracula's Daughter and, and all kinds of Ghost of Frankenstein sequels of what we already had. So we end up seeing a reuse of those classic monsters, that same cycle again and again and again. And in order to make it fresh, they would make them comedies. That's where the Abbott and Costello movies came out around 1948. And uh, and what else can we do? Well, we can take all the monsters and throw them in one movie. So you've got House of Frankenstein and House of Dracula, where the whole con- conceit there was, we just have everybody in one movie. So there was kind of a, a little bit of a dearth of creating something new or original at that point. But then that does change. We do finally get something original from Universal. And this is kind of a new tradition. We get the creature from the Black Lagoon. And now we have science returning as a factor. But unlike the earlier films where we get more of the sense of the gods and monsters notion of scientists trying to become God. Now we get this notion more in the 50s of science gone wrong. And there's more a sense of the science going wrong because we're messing with nature. Let's listen to the beginning of Creature from the Black Lagoon, which kind of sets the tone for the film and for a lot of what we would get in the 1950s in our science fiction horror. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. 
and the earth was without form and void. This is the planet Earth, newly born and cooling rapidly from a temperature of 6,000 degrees to a few hundred in less than five billion years. The heat rises, meets the atmosphere, the clouds form and rain pours down upon the hardening surface for countless centuries. The restless seas rise, find boundaries, are contained. Now, in their warm depths, the miracle of life begins. In infinite variety, living things appear and change and reach the land, leaving a record of their coming, of their struggle to survive, and of their eventual end. The record of life is written on the land, where 15 million years later, in the upper reaches of the Amazon, Man is still trying to read it. So talk a little bit about the creature. The creature introduced us to this great character. For anybody who hasn't seen it, describe what the Gill Man looks like. Uh, well, the Gill Man is post-Jack Pierce, and it's a full-body fish man, for lack of a better term. The suit, the costume that the actors, there were two actors who played the Gill Man, was wearing is so convincing and so well done that m- most makeup artists and special effects artists today still cite it as one of cinema's best special effects makeup jobs ever. It is head to toe. You There are no seams visible. You see it from all angles. And, even, and underwater. And underwater, which is – there is stunning underwater photography uh, featuring uh, Rico Browning, who was a, an Olympic uh, swimmer who had to hel- hold his breath for minutes upon minutes at a time as he swam underwater with no visibility in this suit that uh, had gills that would breathe. And it was really – Really an amazing suit. So the creature from the Black Lagoon gave us something that audiences really had never seen before, something really startling, not to mention it was in a new technology called 3D uh, in 1954. So now we're talking 33 years after the Universal Cycle started. And uh, the creature was a real uh, revitalization of it. Um, And what you were mentioning about the science aspect before we had scientists as these kind of larger-than-life figures. Now we have the scientist characters as these are just guys with jobs just like anyone else. And you have two different scientists. So instead of the insane, mad scientist, there's one scientist who is ethical and there's one scientist who's not quite as ethical. And, uh, and the theme really comes from that ethics a conflict between the two scientists, uh, and that is actually a central conflict to the film. Very interesting film. Let me play one of the scenes that you enjoy from this film, and then you can explain to us why. Hi. Thought I'd come up and get some air. What do you suppose is taking them so long? David's very thorough. 
shouldn't you be resting, Kay? I couldn't sleep. Listen to the sounds. Hunting calls, mostly. Animals out for the kill. Some of them are cries of fear, like people who whistle in the dark. I love this scene. I think this scene perfectly captures what the film is trying to say. You have two people out of their element hearing sounds. They're in the middle of the Amazon uh, forest on a boat, and they're hearing these noises, and they both have completely different interpretations of the sounds they're hearing. Uh, One is this kind of almost Werner Herzogian, these are animals that are trying to kill, it's about death. And the other one is, you know what, maybe they're just afraid and they're, and they're trying to save themselves. It's more of a survival technique. What we don't get from the audio that we just heard is while they're having this conversation, the creature who they had just captured is breaking out of his confinement. And uh, this is happening simultaneously as they're noticing these things about nature. It's a very man versus nature film, but, uh, but nature is arguably not the total bad guy here. And I love that scene for that. The Creature from the Black Lagoon wrapped up kind of the what we consider the classic collection of universal monsters. We started with Abbott and Costello. So I think let's go out with Abbott and Costello again. Abbott and Costello is responsible for keeping these monsters alive during their leaner years. And they really offered a nice take on some of the cliches and some of the monsters. So what are we going to go out with here? Well, we have Lou Costello on the phone. Uh, Abbott and Costello, in in their alter egos in this film, work for a shipping company. And uh, Lou Costello is on the phone with Lon Chaney Jr. in the middle of a transformation. Do you have two crates addressed to the McDougal House of Horrors? What's the number on the checks? Never mind that. Tonight the moon will be full here. I haven't much time. Now listen closely. I'm flying out of here at dawn. Under no circumstances are you to deliver those crates until I arrive. Understand? Under... Mr. McDougal, will you stop gargling your throat? I've been speaking with Miguel Rodriguez, director of the Horrible Imaginings Film Festival and one of the programmers for the Universal Suspects at the Digital Gym Cinema. Thank you very much for talking with me. Thank you. This has been a lot of fun. Hey, you'll have to get your dog away from the phone. I can't hear a word you're saying. Thanks for listening to the KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm Beth Accomando. You were listening to my discussion with Miguel Rodriguez about the Universal Suspects program at the Digital Gym Cinema. You can catch the Universal Suspects one Sunday a month at the Digital Gym Cinema on El Cajon Boulevard. This Sunday, there'll be a pair of mummy films, and the series will close out with a triple feature of Creature from the Black Lagoon films on December 13th. Check back every Thursday for new film reviews and every Friday for interviews. You can follow me on Twitter at Cinebeth and like the Cinema Junkie Facebook page. And since the podcast is new, I'd love some reviews on iTunes. So till our next film fix, I'm Beth Accomando, your resident Cinema Junkie.
KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org.